and we welcome you guys to Quarantine Chats, episode 50. We are joined here by a very special guest here, Ryan Abram. He has covered USC football for over 20 years. He is the lead journalist at uscfootball.com. And I will have my special guest, Isaiah Young, introduce him. Thank you, Isaiah, for getting him on the show. Yeah, no problem. This this is an interview that I've been looking forward to quite some time. You guys all know that I'm a huge fan of Keaton Slovis. I watch a lot of USC football games, and you know what got me to go like what got me to go after Ryan is I I saw his pre-game and post-game shows on his Peristyle podcast uh, with Shotgun Spratling and Keeley, and they do a fantastic job. And I watch it every Saturdays. They go over what USC did right, what USC did wrong, and, you know, the uh, reactions from the fans and stuff like that. So they do a great job. really recommend you guys all to check it out. But, yeah, as Steven said, Ryan has covered USC football for over 20-plus years. Uh, it's so – I'm so honored to have him on the show. Ryan, thanks for coming on. And uh, how how's life in uh, Southern California going? Hey, guys, thanks uh, for having me on. Yeah, it's going pretty good i mean we're we were really helpful hopeful there was gonna be a college football season then it's sort of get i don't know it doesn't seem like it's as likely at this point but you know just trying to stay safe out there i love being outside going i'm trying to golf go play beach volleyball just do things kind of away from other people and and be you know keep being hopeful that we're going to get college football this fall yeah man um we 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 are as well you know we are huge diehard college football fans and that, that actually ties into our first topic, which is what was your reaction to the Pac-12 announcing that it has canceled all non-conference football games for this upcoming season and will go to a conference-only schedule? Yeah, I think once we heard from the Big Ten, and it was a bit of a surprise that they did it as early as they did. We know the SEC, which you know drives college football, wanted to wait as long as possible. And we felt like the Power Five conferences might have been in cahoots a little bit. It seemed like there was a lot of communication going on. We don't really have a college football czar. There's no one running college football. So a lot of that power base is at the conference level. I've, I've really felt that all the conferences would kind of come together in the power five and make a decision together. The big 10 is pretty much knocking that first domino down. Once the big 10 canceled their non-conference schedule, I just didn't feel like there's any way the rest of college football could follow along. So I think with the PAC 12, They've kind of been more of a following conference, but they followed pretty quickly. Within a couple of days, they announced that uh, the conference schedule was wiped out. And there's still some question there. I mean, both Stanford and USC played Notre Dame. Could Notre Dame be included in that? Will they go to a 10-conference schedule? Because right now, all the schools have nine games on their schedule, but there's a mix. There's some schools that have four road games, some that have four uh, you know, home games, and the other have, you know, five of, of the opposite of that. So there's still a lot of things to be worked out. We should know by the end of the month what they're going to do uh, with the schedule, but not a huge surprise. The big surprise really was the Big Ten doing it first. But once that happened, it's going to be really hard for the SEC to keep going with their schedules or the ACC when you have other Power Five conferences dropping out. You're losing some of those games. And some of the games the SEC likes to schedule, the uh, you know lower the, the group of five teams or FCS schools, they're, no, they're not going to be able to test players as well as the Power 5 schools can. So to me, it's more about consolidating some of the power, having more control, having more flexibility at the conference level. And then that gives you the best opportunity to have as much of a college football season as you possibly can, as early as you can. Hopefully it's this fall. Maybe they delay it a month or two. 
Maybe they have to delay it to the spring, uh, but you don't want to see it canceled altogether. But they would like to get something in the fall, and the best chance of that would be conference games only. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Ryan. And, you know, that takes me to my second question, and that is, do you believe that we, we will ultimately have a college football season this fall? When I first heard the news that the conferences were all going to conference-only games, I thought, you know, this is the beginning of the end on the 2020 season. I thought that there would be more things to come. But what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I keep going back and forth, guys. I felt like earlier on, they're going to do something. Now, the, if you are a big fan, like we all, we wanted to see college football happening, the factors in your favor, even though things are trending in the wrong direction, are that all of these college athletic departments rely on football. They need football one way or another. I know, that, you know if you're on the water polo team, people don't want to hear that, but without the money that football generates, those other sports wouldn't exist. We saw Stanford cut 11 uh Division one sports is crazy. You know, they are, they had the most, I think in the country, but um, I don't think other athletic departments are going to be able to survive without football. Now you don't want to do it where it's unsafe for student athletes. You don't want to take unnecessary risks, but you could argue a lot of the student athletes are better off being on campus with their fellow teammates in a controlled environment than they would be randomly in their homes across the country. It's, it's hard to say, but I feel like it's such an important part of the athletic department's budgets they're going to put as many resources into doing this as possible. Like whatever they need to make football happen, they're going to try to do it. So unless there's just no way possible, I feel like there's still a chance, you know, the, the numbers aren't going in the right direction. Things aren't trending that way. Football is not a socially distant sport. I mean, they're having enough trouble with golf. The NBA is going to be in a bubble. You can't be in a bubble for college football. The NFL is going to have a hard time with 53 men rosters that are professional athletes. These are college students that have to go and go along with their college lives as well. And a hundred people on a team playing across different States and all this stuff. I mean, there's a lot of complexities there, but I kind of am holding out hope that uh, they're going to be some semblance of a season, maybe start in October, maybe conference game, only eight or 10 games. And they figure out a way to make it happen. And I think the key things guys going to be the flexibility. Think about sports. Is there a more inflexible sport than college football? I mean, they schedule out, you know, games 10 years in advance. They can't change anything. You might see this year conference commissioners going, all right, uh, well, Cal got a whole bunch of sick guys on their team. We're going to move that game against Oregon state to week seven. And, and well, you know, we're actually going to have Oregon state play uh, Washington state twice this year. They're close by where, you know, you might see things like that happening, like the ultimate flexibility, just to make the season happen. So I'm, I'm curious to see what trans transpires, but I feel like there's enough flexibility there with the conference schedule only. There's a decent chance we're actually going to have football. Yeah, wow, that's and, great. Yeah, go ahead, Steven. Yeah, and Ryan, you mentioned that football is really the blue blood of college sports for so many universities out there. I mean, you talk about Stanford, who had to cut 11 athletic programs. That is not an easy decision to make. But the question now is, if we have that college football season, we've already seen all these non-conference games being cut out because they want to limit travel. So under these given circumstances, how will the college football playoffs be played out? And if we don't have a college football playoffs, will we still crown a champion? Yeah, and I think that's when you're talking about flexibility, you're going to have to be flexible if you're the college football playoff committee. I think this is a perfect opportunity to have an expanded playoff where you say, okay, uh, the power five conferences, each are going to use, you go off, do your thing and determine your champion. If Pac-12, if you want to just draw names out of a hat and pick a champion, that's fine. You, we want your champion, big 10. We want your champion. 
we're going to bring them all together. And then the committee can pick three other teams, or maybe you just do six and there's like a, you know, seating and you have uh, you know, two buys or something like that, but let the, the committee go out and pick one other team or three other teams. And you include six or eight teams and go with it that way. Again, being flexible. And I don't think the television partners would matter much. You're going to get more important college games out there because there's a big hit with just, you know, losing some of those games. I mean, just think canceling the conference games, you lose USC, Alabama, USC, Notre Dame, uh, Oregon and Ohio state, Michigan and, and Washington, uh, Wisconsin. I mean, yeah, Notre Dame and Wisconsin. Um, I mean, it's crazy. Some of the stuff that you're missing out on. So if there's an opportunity to have more playoff games, I think the television partners would be uh, in, on board with that. So again, it's about flexibility, but once you split off into conferences and conferences are only, then you need some way to bring them all together. And I think that's where the playoff committee could come in and expand what they're doing right now. Yeah. And I think yeah, that right. is a really good point to be made. If we have an expanded playoffs, maybe you could even have some teams from, you know, the less powerful conferences like a Boise state or UCF sneak in, that would be really exciting. So if we have this, you know, college football playoffs and it is extended. Do you envision it kind of playing out like the NBA playoffs where all the teams kind of meet up in a centralized location and knock out those playoff matchups? Wow. That's, that's interesting. I think it would take so long to get something like that happening, just doing it for the NBA, um, you know, trying to get everyone to the bubble. It's, it's been a logistical nightmare. I don't know if you could go to that level to try to quarantine. It would be like, over a thousand people because of you know your eight college football teams um but you it might have to be a home situation like a home like home games and maybe have the finals somewhere else but just going to a neutral site i think it adds a lot of complexities if you have one team traveling someplace that's you know that's this difficult and if you have two teams traveling i think it makes it this much more difficult so uh, i don't know if they could do that that's a lot to pull together unless they're, the playoffs are going to be like months later because it's taken the NBA a while to get it, and we still haven't seen any games there yet. Yeah, it's going to be a tough, tough situation to manage. I want to go over to Isaiah. Isaiah, you had something to add to the discussion. Yeah, I was just going to add that I agree with Ryan 100% that I believe that this is the perfect time to integrate a 18 playoff. I told someone else this uh, earlier that, um, you, know, with, you know, with this weird year that we're having, that and you have team baseball trying out this new rules and uh, the NBA also trying out some expanded playoff play-in tournament stuff, some stuff like that. They that they've been talking about for quite a while. I just think you know, like we've been talking about this 18 playoff for a while, and if there's a year that you can integrate it in, it's going to be this year because if you don't integrate it this year, I don't know when you when would be the perfect time to integrate it once everything comes back to normal? Yeah. Yep. So let's right. shift over to Trevor, who has a question about kind of where USC has gone since, you know, some of the glory days with guys like Pete Carroll and Sam Darnold even as of late. So my question is, what will USC have to do to reach back to its glory days and status of being like that power five school that's in the national championship game or competing in those high, exciting Rose Bowl victories over Big Ten um, opponents? Yeah, Trevor, it's a great question because that's what most USC fans want to know. Where is it going? And I, to me, college football is so much about coaching. Obviously, players play an integral part of that. 
but coaches have to recruit 365 days a year. You have to be recruiting at a very high level. USC is a program that's done that historically, although the last two recruiting classes are the worst I've ever seen covering the team. And, you know, last year it might've been the worst ever. Uh, they're, they're, they've bounced back. They've hired some much better assistant coaches like a Dante Williams out of, uh, from Oregon, who's from Southern California. Craig Nivar has been uh, really good uh, coming over from Texas. I think having, those relentless recruiters that live and die every day. They're texting somebody, they're calling somebody, they're, they're talking to prospects and they've had to shift during this coronavirus quarantine because you can't have visitors on campus, you can't go out and evaluate. So I think they've done a really good job during this uh, pandemic to go out and figure out ways to recruit and do that. So I think you can do that at USC as long as you're competent. And I think USC had some kind of part-time recruiters on the last couple of staffs and that, you know, that's, that's the fault of Clay Helton. Clay Helton can't have that, let that happen. Now he's replaced those guys and they're recruiting at a much higher level. But to me, it's really about coaching. It's you bring those players in, but you got to develop them as well. You want the, you know, you bring a few three stars in, you want to be able to turn them into first, second, third round draft picks. If you can, like a, a Chenin and Wusu did that a few years ago, coming in, he was like a three-star safety out of Narbonne high school and ends up being, I think it was a second round draft pick uh, linebacker. Um, USC lately, it's more been like they got five stars coming in and they kind of leave at that same level and get drafted wherever they would be. Uh, they need to really show that they can develop those players and obviously win at a high level. Losing, you know, that you mentioned the Rose Bowl season with Sam Darnold. They still lost three games that year. Um, you, it's, it's really tough to be successful in college football if you're going to lose multiple games, three, four, five games a year. Uh, I don't think that can happen. So this was supposed to be like a prove it year for Clay Helton where he's going to take a really good roster, a proven offensive system, a stud and, and Keaton Slovis and a whole bunch of good wide receivers and play a tough schedule with Alabama and at Oregon and Notre Dame. Now, most of those games, the big games are gone. I don't know what this really proves, but it's really to me, Trevor, more about getting that elite level coaching. And I, you know, Clay Elton has not been an elite coach so far, but he's been around a while and you know, he's, he's learned on the job. So if you want to have that success with Clay Elton as a head coach, he'd, he'd have to have shown this year, and maybe this will be an opportunity for him to keep growing that he can take that next step, hire a good competent staff and take this team to another level. If not, then they probably have to go in another direction and you bring in somebody that's been a proven elite uh, winner. And, it, you know, Clay Hilton has never been a head coach before USC took a chance on him so far. I mean, they have a Rose bowl win, which is nice, but in the five or six years, you just haven't seen that kind of elite finish that you'd want to see at USC. So they're not there yet, but, uh, you know, I think USC fans are hopeful one way or another, either with Clay Helton or with somebody else at the helm, you get the right coach and the right fit in there. You can, you can still win at USC. Yeah. On top of that, like when you look at the PAC 12 in general, they haven't been given so much love by the college football committee. Cause like when you get there, like they have a two loss, the committees will be like, well, we don't want two losses in, or they, even when they have one loss, they'd be looking at like the big 12 be like, well, Oklahoma just has a Heisman trophy winner. So we should try to put them in to see what the Heisman trophy candidate can do. But USC may not have that potential star. So it's like, it's a love hate relationship. But then when you get to like the college football, um, when you get left out, you end up playing a big 10 opponent, let's say Ohio state in 2017, then you don't perform and it just hurts your resume. Like saying, can we trust the PAC 12 in the playoff scenario? Yeah, no, you're right. And I think there's certain programs out there that are going to get the benefit of the doubt because they've done it before. Like if Alabama did win the sec and that year they won the title, they still made it in the playoff. You're giving them the benefit of the doubt. Cause you know, they're really good. USC is one of those programs that gets the benefit of the doubt that year. They won the Rose bowl. They started off one and three. 
I don't think you could wow. name another team in the country. I mean, you couldn't do that in the SEC because if you start off one and three in the SEC, there's no way you're getting back. But the Pac-12 was down enough. They didn't even win the conference, but they still get selected to go to the Rose Bowl, even though they didn't win the division. They had beaten Colorado, who won the division, and they go in the Rose Bowl and have an exciting win over a top five Penn State team. You're getting the benefit of the doubt if you're USC. So when USC's been down for the last decade or so, it's really tough on the whole the conference in general. Oregon's shown some promise. You know they can get there, but they're still they're still kind of outside looking in. They better be undefeated, or you, you might not get in. Washington, same kind of thing. Um, so I feel like USC is one of those teams that is going to get the benefit of the doubt. And if Oregon wants to be that elite squad and Washington wants to be the elite squad, I think you need USC to be good. Because if you're not, then it's not really proven anything for the conference. If USC is really good and Oregon wins it, it, sh- it helps Oregon a lot more. So I think USC being down, it's not only hurt, hurt, it, hurt USC, but it's hurt the whole conference. Yeah, yeah, and I think to that point, Ryan, I think one thing that has really hurt USC is the inflexible scheduling of college football. USC scheduled some of these games with Alabama with the intention of being an elite team by the time it was 2016 or 2017. And then as a result, in that beginning of the Rose Bowl season, you had USC playing Alabama in pretty much week one, week two, losing by 35 points. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm not saying that all of those players came in with the mindset that we're going to win the national title, right? But every coach, every player out there comes in with, you know, the aim of contending for a national championship. And when you have early blowout loss to Alabama in which you couldn't really forecast for, it really brings down your program going forward for those next few weeks. You don't build up that momentum that some of the other programs have built up through maybe an easier early season schedule. I think for the Pac-12, you have to do that, where if you're in the SEC, you can play a couple cupcakes early, play a cupcake later in the season, uh, you know, as a bye week before your big rivalry game, you can't really do that in the PAC 12. I think that part of the, the reason USC's had success is they do schedule those tough games. And like in the Pete Carroll era, they would win them. I mean, they, Matt Leinert's first game was at Auburn and they had three wow. NFL running backs and an NFL quarterback. And, it, you know, they shut them out, you know, it was great. Like that's insane. His first ever pass was a touchdown, you know, like it, it's pretty crazy that you can do that. But when you go out on the road and beat Auburn in your opener, you're going to get the benefit of the doubt the rest of the season where if you went out and beat a couple of cupcakes and you're on the West coast, you're not going to do it. Ohio state could probably do it. You know, Alabama could probably do it. LSU after winning a title, they could probably do it. But for the PAC 12, you got to show you can win those games. In the last couple of years, we saw both Washington and Oregon uh, play Auburn, I believe. And they both lost those games. If, if that, if they win that game, it helps the PAC 12. If they don't, then you're sort of like, okay, the PAC 12 is off. And so, you're, you're, you're kind of forced into playing those kind of games out here, but you're right. You lose that one early. It's kind of takes away a lot of the momentum, but if you win it, you're going to get the benefit of the doubt along the way. And if you can run the table in the conference, you'll definitely be in the college football playoff. Man, it just kind of shows you the razor thin margin for the PAC 12. I mean, last year, Oregon had that amazing game against Auburn. If they had managed to close that out, we don't know how the rest of the season would look, even with the loss to ASU, they may yeah. have, we may have well have snuck into the college football playoffs. So. Yeah, it's it's a razor razor thin margin for most of the Pac-12. For USC, they got they get some wiggle room, you know. So that's what's good. So it, it helps the Pac-12 if USC can be good, and I know USC fans are hoping for that too. Yeah. Speaking of which, 
Last time we saw USC kind of get back on in the national stage, it was with a promising young quarterback in Sam Darnold. And now we have Keaton Slovis to help carry the program forward. So I'm going to turn it over to Isaiah, who has some questions about Keaton's overall potential and where he could really take this program. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Uh, Ryan, I think Keaton Slovis is a stud. I think that he's going to be uh, when all, all is said and done, I think he's going to be one of the best quarterbacks to ever play at USC. I think that's just how good he is. Uh, he Last year, he completed 289 passes out of 392 attempts, 71.9% completion percentage, 30 touchdowns, nine interceptions. Just a fantastic freshman year for Keaton Slovis. I wanted to ask you, you know, Keaton Slovis, he had an amazing freshman year last season. What are some traits that you like about him and what are some weaknesses that you need uh, that you believe he needs to work on? Yeah, I think you, you mentioned all those numbers. One of the strengths is that was all off the bench. I mean, he was not the starter going into the season. He ends up you know coming in halfway through game one and is able to bounce back even with a couple injuries and still perform at a high level. He learned a brand new offense with uh, Graham Harrell, but that relationship has been really good. Graham Harrell and Keaton Slovis. Uh, Harold loved them. And the fact that they made him the number two quarterback, which everyone thought he would just be number four. Graham Harold knows quarterbacks. He saw something special in him. And we've all seen it now too. I mean, he had four games over 400 yards. He had the UCLA game, four different wide receivers caught a hundred yards worth of passes. It's just some crazy stuff there from Slovis. I think he's shown the poise that it takes to be a great quarterback. I think, you know, he's got a good enough arm. I think the accuracy is there. I mean, 71 over 71%, one of the most accurate, quarterbacks we've seen especially as a freshman um i mean he's done some really amazing things i think sometimes he can kind of trust you know his receivers a little too much you know, we talked to graham harrell about that a little bit where he'd some you just need to dump it off every once in a while but he's he's completed such a high level you there's it's hard to fault him for wanting to try to you know make those plays and he does have an amazing group of wide receivers and he was a beneficiary that you know jt daniels wasn't uh the year before of having a really good college offensive system that's air raidy, but not, you know, not like a Mike Leach air raid. They do want to run the football more. So I think it's helped to have one voice, one plan in that call in that, you know, offensive coach's room. And that's what's presented to Slovis and he's performing not JT Daniels. You had like Clay Helton doing some stuff. You had, uh, the, you know, all the different, you know, you had T Martin doing things. You had his quarterback coach. You had everyone kind of you know, taking part in the offense and there was still stuff left over from Steve Sarkeesian and Lane Kiffin. And it was just, it was sort of this mess. They called it like the gumbo offense. It was a little bit of everything. I don't think that's easy on the quarterbacks. This offense is pretty easy on the quarterbacks. You can learn it in three days of practice. He installed the entire offense in three spring practices. Then they just redo it over and over again. I think that helps a young quarterback a lot, but give him a lot of credit for being able to take the reins and run with it when he was really thrust in this situation he didn't expect to be in and then ends up performing at the highest level. And, his back, you know, hit the, the starting quarterback ends up transferring out because he played so well. Yeah, and I think yeah. Keaton Slovis could be better than Sam Darnold. I really do. You look at the completion percentage, it's about 6 to 7% higher than Darnold had in his best year with USC. Yeah, I mean, Sam Darnold's an NFL quarterback, but you watched him. He made things happen. He was able to escape pressure in the pocket and not just, like, run out of bounds for five yards in the first down. He would escape pressure in the pocket – and make something out of a broken play and find somebody downfield, pick up a big chunk of yardage or a touchdown or something. And those are the kind of special things where you're like, all right, that's, that's just, it, that's his ability to do things like that. 
where we've seen Keenan Slovis, he didn't really have a, a, a great offense to run either. So he kind of had to do everything on the fly. We haven't seen as much of that. We've seen Slovis do some of that, but he hasn't had to do as much because a lot of the stuff is just on schedule. Like they're running a competent offense. Guys are getting open and he's getting in the football. I mean, they say, you know, Graham Harrell says like, I just want my receivers to run to grass, which basically means run and get open. And the quarterback's job is to throw it to you. He doesn't want to make it too complicated. With Sam Darnold, you had to kind of, he had to take the, you know, take, he had to put a Superman cape on and do things himself where Slovis can kind of ex execute the offense and still perform at a high level. But as far as, you know, we'll see how Sam does in the NFL. Uh, he's had, you know, it's been weird with the Jets, but Slovis looks like he's a guy that could excel at that level. Um, you know, having a Cliff Kingsbury kind of offense to run in the NFL, who knows, things like that could be a lot of fun. Yeah, Kurt Warder coaching him in high school. So, that certainly helps, but yeah, he's, he's got the potential, but they're very different quarterbacks. Yeah, that yeah. is true. Yeah. Ryan. Uh, another thing I just got to say about Slovis before we move on is, you know, the thing I most like about him is that he's just so calm under pressure. You know, there's nothing that phases him. I remember, I think it was the game against Notre Dame where USC was down. I believe it was 21 to three. I might be wrong on that, but one of the announcers for uh, the Notre Dame telecast was saying that he saw Keaton Slovis on the uh, sidelines, just telling his offensive linemen, telling his wide receivers, telling his tight ends that, you know, guys, it's okay. We've got this. Just stay calm and just play your game and we're going to battle back. And USC, they did battle, battle back, but they unfortunately fell short. But yeah, this, the calm about this kid is just something that I, I don't, you don't really see from, freshman quarterbacks no you're right and I think being a leader at the quarterback spot people are like oh, how strong is your arm hockey or whatever but you got to be a leader you're getting the entire team even the defensive guys to follow you if you're going out there and lighting up the scoreboard you you energize the guys on defense like hey I know we can make a play and my guy on the offense is going to make something happen I feel like he gives everyone confidence and he was able to instill that like you said you know what even though they were down the, during the Notre Dame game I mean they had a if he wouldn't have got hurt in the uh, the Holiday Bowl, who knows what would have happened. They started to come back there before he ended up getting knocked out. But he's got the guys on the team. They, he gives them a lot of confidence, and I think that shows some really good leadership skills. For a freshman, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, and I think that ultimately USC's success is not going to necessarily be predicated on Slovis. We've seen some of the best of Slovis already, and I think that if USC does falter, it will be kind of on the defense. It will be on the other positions of weakness that USC does have. And so I want to turn it to Trevor, who has some you know, questions about USC's other positions and where they can improve to become a national contender again. So for the positions that we are looking at, so if USC was to get back into the you know, chase for the playoffs, what are some strengths that they're going into this year and some weaknesses that they need to improve upon? In this upcoming year yeah i think if you're talking on the defensive side of the football um i i think they fixed some of the coaching stuff on offense and they had a lot of great players but they brought in a really good system and graham harrell's a really good coach and you're letting these players play and put them in position to win i think that's what you're trying to do with bringing in todd orlando on the defensive side of the ball uh clancy pendergast a longtime defensive coordinator at usc i think he was really good with the secondary it was a young secondary last year and i thought they played well but he sort of overlooked the linebackers a little bit and USA some really talented guys at the linebacker spot. They just seem to be underutilized. And we didn't see the kind of pop and explosiveness you want out of a defensive front that there's a bunch of NFL guys, I think there too. So 
you're hopeful Todd Orlando comes in. He's a linebacker guy by trade. You want to see those linebackers. They are the, the Pallier, no Teotes of the world, who was a five-star kid coming out Bishop Gorman. Like, where's he been? We, we want to see more uh, of guys like that. Can I Malga? There's a bunch of dudes there. And, you know, Drake Jackson on the defensive line is a, just a force to be reckoned with. He's going to be a, an elite pass rusher. That young secondary last year played well. I think they're going to do, uh, you know, there'll be a year older this year. There's a lot of guys like Italano Funga or Elijah Griffin. I think studs all around. They have plenty of talent on the defensive side of the ball. To me, it's really about on the coaching side, making it work together, making it be a defense that's not in the bottom two thirds or whatever of the country. They're just too talented to be ranked that low and not force a lot of turnovers and things like that. So I feel like it's not necessarily about a position. They get, they're deep on the defensive line. I, I mean, I, I like all their positions on defensive side of the ball. I think they're, they're deep everywhere. They got a lot of guys that can play. What position are they going to be put in by these coaches? And we didn't really get, we got to see one spring practice with these new defensive coaches because it's an entire new defensive staff. So we don't really have a good feel for you. I thought after spring we would know, but obviously with the, the, the quarantine and stuff, we don't have that. But the, talking to those coaches, I feel pretty confident that they're going to get more out of these players than maybe the last staff uh, did, which – they, they, made, they made some changes on the defensive staff last year, but it wasn't like a cohesive group anymore. It was just sort of like mixed and match. I think now Tortolando's got a bunch of guys that he likes on his staff. Some player, you know, a coach or two that he had at Texas and, um, you know, bringing a young guy like Vic Soto uh, for the defensive line. I, I think the staff's going to work together well. They got enough talent. So I think they're going to be a lot better on defense that we have saw the previous years. Yeah, I agree with yeah, you. Well, Adding I that defense. Oh, sorry, Isaiah. No, I was just going to say, uh, Ryan, you hit on it. You know, like the thing that I could see uh, hurting USC this upcoming season is the lack of spring practices for the defense to get that, uh, to learn that scheme and, you know, to practice that scheme. Because when you, when you learn a new scheme and you can't practice it on the field, it is extremely hard to go out there in the game and do your job. And I think that's what, could end up hurting USC this upcoming season. I hope it doesn't hurt USC because I root for USC. But yeah, that's the one thing that I could really see biting USC this year. Yeah, I and think then, across college football, real, real quick, Trevor, sorry. Across college it's football, okay. <laughs> anyone that makes a change at a coaching, at a, at a head coaching position or a coordinator position, you're going to be a disadvantage. I love Nick Rolovich going up to Washington State. He, but Man, you're, you're a brand new coach. You got Carl Durrell going to Colorado. Like, you're a brand new coach. You've had like one practice or no practices with your players. That's going to be really difficult. And when you're, you know, for Graham Harrell, he's got the same system. They know it. For the defensive guys, you're right. It's now they all have to learn this new thing. And maybe you only get a few weeks of real practice before the season. It's going to be a lot more difficult. Anyone that brought back their coordinators and their coach, probably in a much better spot than the other programs that have new turnover there. Yeah, and like for what you said for defense, getting that linebacker core going, that's like a crucial position on that football field because that is like determining that third and three or third and four situation. If you can bring those linebackers up to create pressure and like stop the run or if it's a, like a deep third and seven, that linebacker core can make some uneasy pressure on the quarterback to make them throw awkward throws so your D-backs can pick off, get a nice pick six. So once USC can develop that, I think they can probably be run the entire conference, get in the college football playoffs and make a statement saying the Pac-12 is here and we're going to be here year in and year out. Yeah. Watch for uh, Solomon Tuiela-Pupu who had a foot injury out of high school, highly ranked kid out of modern day, just big, strong, fast. Uh, he practiced a couple of times, but every time it just, 
we'd see him a little bit and then he would kind of get hurt. We wouldn't see him again. If he's full, you know, go this year, he's going to be a fun one to watch. So we just haven't seen him uh, much because of the injuries, but if he's back, he's going to be another one of those studs at USC for the linebacker spot. All right, let's get into recruiting with Trevor. So I, obviously earlier we did talk a little bit about recruiting, but how does USC need to you know, compete against Ohio State, Alabama, LSUs of the world in trying to recruit top talent like five-star recruits to come to USC to play versus going to schools that are in the college football playoffs almost every year? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's one of the bigger failures from last year was that recruiting class. And they had like, uh, you know, Bryce Young, five-star quarterback, ends up decommitting and going to – Alabama. And if you remember, I mean, you, you guys are all young, but the, in the, the mid nineties, late nineties, uh, the Florida's, the Florida States, the uh, Ohio state, they would come, you know, Texas would come to California and take some of their best recruits. Miami was a huge recruiting power. They would go up to like De La Salle high school or a bunch of the ones in Southern California. And some of the top players would end up leaving. And the big thing Pete Carroll did was make it cool to stay on the West coast. And he started getting guys like Sean Cody, uh, to stay in Southern California, starts recruiting at a high level. He brings in big recruiters like Ed Orgeron and stuff, and they really sold what USC could be. And then when they started winning, then they got then they were getting the guys from across the country. So the first thing he did was keep a fence around California. And once USC, you know, went five and seven and just started to look, you know, Clayton's on the hot seat. USC lost its luster, and then it's open game. Clemson could come in, Alabama come in. Texas, Ohio State, all those programs could come in and steal away the best players in California. And now you have to try to get back to, to you know, holding that off. Oregon's been doing an amazing job recruiting California and Southern California, even losing Dante Williams, you know, they're one of their best uh, recruiters. They've done a really good job, especially getting linemen. And uh, that's one area I think USC still needs to improve on. They've got better this class, 2021. We'll see. I mean, there's a lot more commitments now that we normally see at this time of year. Um, but there, it's a really good class for USC number seven or whatever in the country right now, but the, and they were up to, I think number four, but Oregon's recruiting really well. They're a top five type of program. So they still got to hold off Oregon, but at least they're now getting back Trevor to what, you know, the normal DNA of USC recruiting is, which they mm -hmm. got away from it the last couple of years, but they got to do that. And then even take it to another level by recruiting nationally. They're getting a bunch of guys out of Texas, but mostly because they hired a bunch of Texas assistants. I think at this point, you can, if you can show like, Hey, we're going to win the PAC 12 this year, go forward. And you know, if they have a playoff, make a run to playoff or whatever, I think that opens the door. But if you're going eight and four or uh, seven and five, it's just, you're not going to be able to recruit nationally like you were able to before. So there's a, I think they're getting back there, Trevor, but you need to go that, that next level by being an elite team, not losing three, four five games a year, like maybe losing one or two, then getting those national guys, not to, not just the Southern California guys, but the national guys as well. Speaking of losing with three, you on that, you know, speaking Sorry, of losing three, four, five games, Isaiah here really faults Clay Helton for contributing to some of USC's struggles. So I'm going to go to Isaiah, and he has some questions about that coaching position and Clay Helton's job security. Yeah, uh, thanks, Stephen. Uh, we addressed this a little bit earlier, but uh, Ryan, I'm going to be brutally honest with you I'm not the biggest fan of Clay Helton I think you know he should have been gone years ago uh, he has tons of great talent to work with every season and yet somehow can't get the team to the college football playoffs which I believe is a standard for USC fans each and every year and also for me his in-game management leaves a lot to be desired 
Uh, why do you believe that the USC administration has been unwilling to get rid of Clay Helton despite overwhelming support from the fans to get rid of him and also uh, the mediocre results that he's put up? And what do you believe Clay Helton has to do to win back the support of the USC fan base? Yeah, it's been tough. The fans are certainly not on Clay Helton's side. He's been you know, securely on the hot seat the last couple of years. Going five and seven at USC, the last guy to do that was Paul Hackett. You can't allow things like that to happen, especially when you look at his roster compared to the people who are playing. I mean, you're, the numbers are right. I mean, you're, you can't really defend what Clay Helton's record has been. They've had some good years, but, you know, losing the Holiday Bowl like they did last year, you know, getting blown up by Ohio State in the Cotton Bowl, um, going five and seven, like those are inexcusable things. When you have this talent advantage, you can't let that happen. The, you know, the problem for USC fans, the problem for the USC football program which was end up being to the benefit of Clay Helton is they've had such poor leadership in the athletic department, uh, starting with Pat Hayden, who is a, you know, all American at USC, a Rhodes scholar, just a terrible athletic director. It's making awful decisions. And Lynn Swan, we could never even talk to Lynn Swan. He's a you know, super stud at USC NFL hall of famer was not a very good athletic director. He, he was plucked out of obscurity. So there USC was hiring people that were just big names and not people that were good at their jobs. And I think, in this kind of environment, you're managing a $120 million budget. It's great that he was an awesome football player at USC, but he had never been an athletic, you know, administrator or even thought about it. You're going to bring guys like Pat Hayden and Lynn Swan in to do a job that's just way over their head. And I feel like that's where the shortcomings came from. Uh, Lynn Swan, you know, Pat Hayden hired Clay Helton permanently before going into, you know, getting blown out uh, by Stanford in the championship game. And, um, you know, things like that. You're like, why did you, you didn't really need to do that. You hire a guy that has no experience as a head coach to run your program, mainly because he was around and he was part of the football team. Like, okay, let's, we'll keep him around. Instead of going out and finding the best guy who's really good at their job, they hired the familiar person. I think that's part of USC's problem. And then Lynn Swan gives them an extension uh, for like five years and, and fully guaranteed just inexcusable things that you just shouldn't do uh, if you're going to be running an athletic department like USC. So I think, Cloud was the beneficiary of all that. And then when Mike Bone comes in, who's been a real athletic director, the first time they've hired someone that was an actual athletic director since like 1984. Um, so, but the problem was he had to make a decision on Clay Helton within like three weeks. And there was a lot of financial reasons not to fire Clay Helton at the time. So to me, I think he's going to be pretty good, but his hands were, to my point, his hands were tied as far as trying to get rid of Clay Helton when he did. Now with the pandemic, who knows what's going to go on there. So, a lot of it to me, guys, is just USC had poor leadership at the top, and that sort of set this up for you get a coach that's not been successful, but you're not really in a position to fire him anymore because of all the other failures that not just the athletic department, but the university as a whole has made over the years. So I think they're trying to get it fixed with Carol Fult, the president, and, uh, and Mike Bone, the athletic director. But really, guys, it's just been poor leadership at the top. And USC has been so good, it can still kind of run itself that ran its course. Once you go five and seven, all bets are off. Now you got to really make good decisions and try to fix things. And that's what they want Mike Bone to be able to come in and do. Yeah, yeah you know, Ryan, uh, don't don't even get me started on Pat Hayden. You know, he, him choosing <laughs> Ed Orgeron. I mean, yeah, he, him choosing to not retain Ed Orgeron after Ed Orgeron was magnificent with USC when he was the interim head coach. And uh, going with uh, Steve Sarkeesian, I think is absolutely 
you know, ridiculous. And then Lynn Swan, that extension you talked about. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That was totally ridiculous because there was no one else that was going to give Clay Helton the amount of money and years that he wanted. And uh, I feel bad for Carol Fote and Mike Bone because USC fans, they've just got this really high standard. And if you look on their Twitter page every day, it's like a tweet about, uh clay yeah it's about fire helton or resign or something like that so i really hope that usc turns it around but yeah i'm gonna go over to uh steven and trevor they've got a question on the pac-12 let's wrap it up with trevor's question about um pac-12 games for All this right. season my final question is what conference games you're going to be excited for this year the thrillers the heartbreaks that you could see this season Yes, yeah, so we know it's going to be conference only. Um, I think USC playing at Oregon is a big one. I mean, Oregon's going to be the favorite in the North. USC is going to be the favorite in the South. Uh, so I think that's a really huge one. But one thing you want to watch out for is Cal. Uh, I love you know the way Cal's been able to play defense the last couple of years. Tim DeRuiter, I covered a little bit when he was at uh, Fresno State. I think he's a really good defensive coach. Um, but the, Chase Garber is their quarterback. When he was in last year, Cal was winning. When he was out, they were losing. And I feel like they're a team that could make a run at the North and, and, you know, they're, they're someone that brings their quarterback back. There's a lot of quarterbacks being replaced across the pac 12. Uh, you love the way Utah's being able to, to play, but man, they lost so much production. I, I like picking Utah. They won the division in the last two years, but they lose so much and USC brings so much back. It's, it's tough to overlook them. Uh, I like Arizona state as well, a little bit. So like the, the Utah Arizona state game, Utah, USC, Arizona State, USC, that kind of triangle. I think those are all going to be interesting. And even with Jimmy Lake in the north, uh, I, you know, I, I feel like he's going to keep that rolling, similar to what David Shaw did with, with uh, Jim Harbaugh rolling at Stanford. I think Jimmy Lake could kind of keep it going there, but he's got a defensive focus. And they've just sort of dropped off on defense a little bit. Uh, and I feel like they're going to open up the offense a little bit more. Washington can make a run. I think there's the north is really strong, and Oregon State's on the, on the rise. Washington State's going to be fun with Nick Rolovich, but watch out for Cal. I think they're going to be one of those kind of, uh, you know, teams to really watch for. I think Stanford's just probably going to keep falling off. They were four and eight last year. Didn't make any changes to the coaching staff. I think that's a real problem, but the, the, the triangle of games, USC, Arizona state and Utah in the South, and then like Washington, Oregon and Cal in the North, watch those matchups. I think those are going to probably be the most fun. All right. Yeah, I want to thank um, Ryan so much for coming on. And for certain, USC is going to need to win those two games against Utah and Arizona State. It's going to be pivotal in any potential conference championship or playoff bid for them. You know, I wish USC the best of luck going forward. And Ryan, you as well. I just, um, it was a fun conversation. Really loved you joining us. And um, just for everyone watching out there, you can follow Ryan's website at uscfootball.com. I have the URL attached in the description as well. And take care. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, guys. You all stay safe and cross your fingers. We do get college football. For sure. <laughs> all right. I will leave you guys off with some USC fight song music. <laughs>